You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. John chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verse 17 and 18 this morning. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help in studying His Word. Our Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Word, and that Your Word is clear, that Your Word is true. We thank You for the privilege that it is to be able to gather here together and to worship You and to look at Your Word. We pray now that You would fix our hearts and minds upon it, and that we might hear Your voice in the pages of Scripture. For your glorious sake and for the edification equipping of your people, we pray for your help, O Spirit of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Would somebody like to go shoot whoever it is that's banging on the door over there? Oh, okay. Somebody just ran out. Okay. You don't, hey Dave, I, I didn't mean that really. <laughs> okay. It is sometimes difficult for people to imagine how it is possible for God to be both loving and just. And they presume that if God is loving, then He would never condemn and He would never judge anybody. And they think that it is unloving to have any kind of a, pass any kind of a moral judgment or any kind of a condemnation. And if you spend any time at all witnessing to people or sharing your faith, you will not go far before you will have somebody say to you, well, I believe everybody's going to heaven and nobody's going to hell because God is a loving God and that's what a loving God would do. Because God is loving, He's just going to forgive everybody. And they, in their minds, have no concept of how it's possible for God to be a loving God and yet to punish sinners and lawbreakers. And it's because they have sort of a twisted misunderstanding or a twisted idea of divine love that they come to that conclusion. And you see this work out in people's lives when they say things like, well, I would never judge or condemn anybody. I just want to love everybody. I don't want to say anything about sin. I don't want to condemn anybody's sin. I just want to love everybody, and because I want to love everybody, I would never make a moral judgment. And then when you make a moral judgment, they're very quick to say, that was wrong of you to say that they were wrong. You can't tell people they're wrong if you're going to love them. And of course, that's a moral judgment, isn't it? Anytime anybody ever calls you judgmental or intolerant, you just ask them one question. Are you judging me? Because that seems very judgmental and intolerant of my views. They have a twisted idea of what justice is and what love is and what tolerance is. And because they assume that God is just like them, they assume that if they can't imagine doing something, then God certainly can't imagine doing something. And certainly God is so much like them that if they wouldn't do it, then they can't imagine that God would ever do it. And so they have a warped idea of divine love and a misunderstanding of justice. And yet we know from Scripture that love and justice do go together, and they meet, they kiss at the cross. The mercy of God and the justice of God meet at the cross. And before the cross, you might have asked, how can God be a loving God and a righteous God and a holy God and yet forgive sinners? How can God express love and kindness and mercy and at the same time be just and holy and righteous? How can God demonstrate His wrath towards sin and yet show mercy towards sinners? And the answer to that is the cross, where the wrath of God was poured out on sin in order that He might, through the cross, show mercy and grace and loving kindness and forgiveness to sinners. And we saw in John chapter 3, verse 16, 
how the love of God and the justice of God go together. At least in Jesus' mind, they certainly do go together because he was able to say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. So some will perish even though God is a God of love. God is a God of love and he's also a God of justice. And just because God is a God of love does not mean that nobody is going to perish. And we looked last week at the two destinies that all of mankind will face. They will either spend eternity in heaven with life from Christ, eternal life, or they will spend eternity in perishing, in a condition of perishing, dying for their sin, in death, in punishment, in hell for their sin. Those are the two destinies. Today, we're looking at verse 17 and 18. Now, verse 17 and 18 of John chapter 3 is really an explanation of those two destinies. In fact, we were able to kind of get away with a very superficial and quick treatment of the ideas of perishing and eternal life last week because I knew that verse 17 and 18 really explained the last part of John 3, verse 16. Verse 17 and 18 explained that statement that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17 of John chapter 3 explains the eternal life part of that verse. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's an explanation or sort of an expounding of Jesus' statement that whosoever believes in Him, that is the Son of God, will have everlasting life. Verse 18 explains or expounds upon the perishing mentioned in verse 16. Look at verse 18. He who believes in Him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged or condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We understand the anxiety, or at least I hope you do, I hope you feel the anxiety of what it means to have people that we love who we know are going to perish. I am assuming that everybody in this building knows an unbeliever, at least one. I hope everybody in this building knows at least one unbeliever. And I hope everybody in this building is praying for regularly at least one unbeliever. But in all likelihood, everybody sitting here knows a multitude of unbelievers, all kinds of unbelievers. We have some of you children, some of you have spouses, some of you have grandparents or grandchildren. Some of you have uh, nephews and nieces and aunts and uncles and relatives and co-workers and neighbors and friends and close associates and people you went to high school with. People who, for some of you, maybe they were your best friend for years. And yet you know they're going to perish because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And you know what it is that they have chosen. And you know what it is that they desire. What they have chosen and what they desire is hell. They want to be as far away from God as they can possibly be. And they're living their lives as far away from God as they can possibly be. They don't want to spend any time thinking about issues of judgment and righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. They don't want to talk about sin. They don't want to talk about holiness. They don't want to talk about heaven and hell. They don't want to hear any of that because they're living as far away from God as they can possibly be. And yet that should grieve your soul. And it's right for that to vex us. It is right for that to disturb us. And it ought to. And I think it does most of us in this room. And yet they've chosen that, haven't they? That is exactly what the unbeliever wants. In the end, both believers and unbelievers get exactly what they want. Believers get heaven, which I will tell you right now is exactly what I desire. And unbelievers get hell, which I can tell you right now is exactly what they want. They do not want to be anywhere near the righteousness of God or the holiness of God or the God in the Bible. They do not and they will not turn to Jesus Christ. And the Bible gives the reason, John chapter 3 gives the reason why that is so, between verses 17 and verse 21. 
Now, let me step back a little bit and remind you, we're in a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Verses 1 to 8 had to do with the nature and the need for the new birth. You need to be regenerated. You must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. Then Nicodemus, in verse 9, expressed his unbelief that that was so. Unbelief that he really needed a new heart and a new life and needed to be regenerated. So then Jesus changed the conversation ever so dramatically to address the subject of belief and unbelief. And from verse 9 to verse 16, the primary subject is that of belief. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you must believe and you need to believe the heavenly things that I am telling you, otherwise you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Then in verses 17 through 21, the subject is unbelief. Verses 17 and 18 deal with the consequences of unbelief, which we're looking at today. And verse 19 through 21 deal with the reasons for unbelief, which Lord willing we'll look at next week. So by the time we're done with today and next week, we'll be through with this conversation with Nicodemus. At least that's the plan. And if you were an adult Sunday school class, then you know how well my plans work out. So we're going to be looking at verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3 today, the consequences of unbelief. Two things I want you to notice. In verse 17, the purpose that God sent His Son for, the purpose for God sending His Son. And then in verse 18 is the peril of unbelief. And Jesus couldn't be any more really harsh and stern and severe in his warnings about unbelief to Nicodemus. Because I believe that Jesus loved Nicodemus and he had a love for Nicodemus and he wanted Nicodemus to believe and he is talking to Nicodemus about belief and so he's being very stern with Nicodemus and saying, Nicodemus, here is what your unbelief is going to get you. I think it's appropriate to do that to people that we witness to, is it not? To tell them, if you remain in unbelief, this is what your unbelief is going to get you. So verse 17 the purpose of God sending His Son into the world. Verse 17 said, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. You see Jesus stating this the same truth two different ways. First, He states it negatively. God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world. That is, to condemn the world. The word judge there meaning to condemn. God did not send His Son for this purpose. Instead, He sent His Son to save the world, so that the world through Him might be saved. Jesus is saying the same thing two different ways, stated negatively and then stated positively. And I think there is in Jesus' words to Nicodemus here an intentional correction to something that Nicodemus believed in the back of his mind. Listening to these words in Nicodemus' shoes. Remember, Nicodemus was a Jew, he was a Pharisee, a self-righteous Jew, and a self-righteous Pharisee, and a teacher of Israel, a member of the Sanhedrin. So Jesus is saying to him, Nicodemus, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. Now, if you were Nicodemus, here's what you would have thought the Messiah was going to come to do. You would have expected that when the Messiah showed up, that the Messiah was going to judge all of the world. He was going to come with the rod of iron and sit on the throne of his father David and rule in justice and glory and righteousness, that he would smite the nations and that all of the nations would turn to dust and that he would set up the kingdom from Mount Zion in Jerusalem and rule over the world. That was the Old Testament Jewish expectation. That was what every Jew, every Jew who believed anything about the Old Testament at all in Jesus' day expected. When the Messiah comes, He will destroy the Gentile nations and He will establish the kingdom and Israel will be at the center of that and He will rule and reign in righteousness and justice. And there will be no end to His kingdom and no end to that throne. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, God didn't send His Son into the world to judge the world. What is He saying to Nicodemus? I haven't come this time to judge the world. This mission, his first coming, was a rescue mission, not a judgment mission. It's not that Jesus didn't come to condemn sin. 
He certainly did that. But he didn't come to usher in judgment and justice like the Jews expected him to come. Nicodemus was expecting Psalm 2 to be fulfilled right there in his own sight. Psalm 2 says, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them, that is the ends of the earth and the nations. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, and here's the warning, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son so that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. All the Jews expected Psalm 2 to be fulfilled when the Messiah showed up. Or they expected to see in physical form what Daniel saw in a vision in Daniel chapter 7. When Daniel said, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames and its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Every Jew expected that to happen when the Messiah showed up. And here is Jesus saying to Nicodemus, God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world. What is he saying to Nicodemus? I came this time not to bring in judgment, but to offer salvation, to atone for sins, to die on a cross, to make salvation possible, to offer the gospel to all men, to open up the floodgates of grace. I came this time to offer life, not judgment. Now, does that mean Jesus will never judge sin? Now, that's why we read John chapter 5 at the beginning of the service. We could have read Acts chapter 17. God has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. And He has furnished proof that He is going to judge the world in righteousness by raising the judge from the dead, that is Jesus Christ. That's the proof that there is a judgment to come. So He didn't come into the world to judge the world the first time. But there is coming a day, friends, when He is going to tread out the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. And He will destroy the nations. And He will establish a kingdom. And he will put down all rebellion and all wickedness and usher in judgment and usher in justice and righteousness. He will do that, but not at his first coming. His first coming, the Lord did not send his son into the world to condemn or to judge the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. Now, what part of the world is going to be saved? Is the whole world going to be saved? So what does Jesus mean when he says that the world will be saved? Does he mean every individual out of the whole world is going to be saved? What does he mean by that? What did I tell you that world meant in John chapter 3, verse 16? Humanity. It's humanity in a general sense. It's not every individual that God loves savingly. It is not every individual that will be saved. Some will perish. Verse 16 says some will perish. Verse 18 says some will perish. So we can't take world in a sense that leads us to universal salvation that everybody's going to get saved. But the essence, the idea is this. God sent His Son into humanity. He loved humanity so much that He sent His Son 
so that humanity might be saved and anybody from humanity, humanity in general, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, anybody. It's open to all. Salvation has been made available to all. Salvation is offered to all because God loves man. He loves humanity so much that He sent His Son so that humanity, mankind, the world might be saved. And anybody in the world who comes, all those who believe, will receive eternal life and not perish. That's the promise. So by world, Jesus doesn't mean every individual is going to be saved, but He means that salvation and grace and the gospel has been offered to the whole world so that all out of the world might be saved and have salvation made available to them. Now look at verse 17 again. Jesus says, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. Now this is the positive side of it, but that the world through Him might be saved. That's the purpose God sent His Son into the world, in order that the world through the Son might be saved. And salvation is offered to the whole world because the Son did not come into the world this time to judge the world. Now listen, when He comes back and He appears in the clouds of heaven, there will be no opportunity for salvation. There will be no repentance offered, no gospel offered. He will not stand as judge and say, now what do you think? Now what will you do with me? When He comes to judge, the opportunity for salvation is over. When the author shows up on the stage, friends, the play is over. It's done. And when He comes back, when He shows up again, the opportunity for salvation will be no more. He came this time to offer salvation. He will come a second time to judge the nations and to judge the world. And He will set up a throne and all will stand before Him and receive their just condemnation. Now, something interesting in the book of John. I want you to keep your finger in John chapter 3. And I want you to look at something interesting over in John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Verse 39. John chapter 9, verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world. What? Chapter 3, verse 17 says, God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world. Chapter 9, verse 39, For judgment I came into the world. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world or to judge the world. For judgment I came into the world. What do we do with those two passages? Did Jesus come to judge the world or not? John chapter 3, verse 17 says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn or to judge the world. But Jesus said, For this I've come into the world for judgment. For judgment I've come into the world. So, did the Son come into the world to judge? Or did He not come into the world to judge? What do you do with those two passages? I guess it's contradiction. We fold up our Bibles and we go home, right? No, it's not that at all. It's really looking at the same truth from two different perspectives. The first time, the Son did not come into the world with the intent or the purpose of bringing in judgment. And yet, at the very same time, judgment is a result of Jesus Christ coming into the world. It is the result of Him coming into the world. One commentator put it this way. The Son does not... Jesus... Uh, see, I'm quoting this out of memory because I didn't write this down. The Son... Uh, let's try it again. Jesus did not come into the world to judge the world any more than the Son comes to cast a shadow. And yet the Son comes out and a shadow is cast, right? The Son came into the world not with the purpose of bringing in judgment. But judgment is the result of Him coming into the world. Because He came into the world, not to judge it, but to save it. Because He came into the world to save the world, the corollary of that is that whoever rejects that salvation experiences judgment. So though it was not the purpose of God to send the Son to judge the world, the result of His coming is that the world will be judged. 
So he did come to judge, but at the same time he was not sent to judge. So though judgment was not the purpose, judgment is a result of him coming. And because he came to offer salvation, all who reject that salvation at the same time will be judged. So did Jesus come to judge the world? Yes and no. In one sense, that was not why he came, but in another sense, that is what comes as a result of him coming. Does that make sense? No. Some of you are honest, and I do appreciate that. Let's look second of all at the peril of unbelief, and that's in verse 18. The peril of unbelief. He who believes in him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He who believes, back to the subject of belief, he who believes is not judged. And the word judged there means condemned. King Jimmy got it right. It's condemned. He who believes is not condemned. I want you to grab onto this truth, because this is one of the most marvelous truths in all of the New Testament. That he who believes in the Son is never, never condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Is that not a marvelous statement? Romans chapter 8 verse 33 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather He who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and also intercedes for us. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? The one who has believed. The one who has truly believed will never be condemned. I will never ever stand before God and hear a sentence of condemnation uttered against me. Never. Who is more powerful than God to condemn me when He has justified me? When God is the one who has said, innocent, cleared, not guilty, acquitted of all charges, righteous in my sight. When the highest judge of the highest court has said that, who is more powerful than God to condemn me before Him? Nobody. I will never have my sins read against me. I will never be charged with my sin. I will never be charged as a blasphemer, a thief, a liar, an adulterer at heart. I will never be charged with any of those crimes. Why? Because I have believed, and I am therefore not condemned. I am, and by the way, when does this happen? Does this happen at some point in my Christian life that I finally escape condemnation? Does it happen after I die? When I die, then I'm finally not condemned? When do I, when do I get the decision not guilty? When is that statement made of me? It is made at the moment of my faith. At the moment of belief, I am declared righteous. All of my sins are taken away, and I am given the righteousness of Christ, so that in the sight of God, I am completely righteous, and I will never be condemned, and I am not condemned now. As unbelievable as this seems to me, to my wife, to my kids, and probably to all of you, in the sight of God right now, I am perfectly righteous. Doesn't mean I never sin. It means that my sins have all been taken away. And I cannot improve on that righteousness. I cannot take away from that righteousness. I cannot tweak that righteousness at all. It is given to me at the moment of belief. And I escape at the moment of belief condemnation. I told you last week, eternal life is not something you're waiting for. It's something you have right now. You have been made alive in Christ Jesus. You have been given spiritual life. And it is a life that is characterized by eternity and it will never die. Eternal life is your present possession, not a future anticipation, your present possession. That's why those who think you can lose your salvation do not understand the doctrine of regeneration. They do not understand what it means to be born again. To be born again is to be given a life that will never end. Never, ever. 
It is to be declared innocent and never to have a charge brought against my name in the court of heaven. Isn't that a marvelous truth? Tell me you don't love that gospel. Tell me there's any greater motivation to obedience. And then that I would go out and willingly, knowingly sin against that kind of grace? How could I do that? I couldn't do that. I wouldn't want to do that. Why? Because I'm so overcome with the reality that right now, I am not condemned. And I will never, ever be condemned. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And nothing can ever take me out of Christ Jesus. I am there for all of eternity. I am accepted in the Beloved. I am Him. He is mine. And never, ever shall we be separated. I will always be in Him. And since I will always be in Him, I will never hear a statement of condemnation against me. The only thing that the Father will ever say concerning me is righteous. Now, it's not because I'm worthy to be called righteous. It's not because that I'm worthy to never be condemned. I am worthy only of condemnation. But Christ is worthy. And because He is worthy and I am seen in Him, His worthiness is my worthiness. His righteousness is my righteousness. But though I deserve condemnation, I will never hear any condemnation because the Father's smile will always be upon me and I will never see a frown from the face of my God. Never ever for any of my sin because it has all been taken away. That is a glorious gospel. There is nothing else on the world that you could offer me that would compare to that news. To never hear guilty concerning Jim Osmond. The peril of unbelief is that those who do not believe are condemned already. Now when does an unbeliever get his condemnation? It's his present reality, isn't it? Look at John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe in the Son or does not, does not obey the Son He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's his current reality. Every unbeliever who is in a state of unbelief, who rejects Christ right now, is not waiting for his condemnation to begin. He is already under the condemnation of God because his unbelief keeps his sins on him, and the wrath of God is currently being poured out from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the current condition of the unbeliever is he is under the wrath of God. The wrath of God hovers over top of him like a shadow, like a cloud. He is like a guilty criminal who has committed the crime, been found guilty, been tried before men, the jury has come back, he has been convicted, his sentence has been read in the court of law, and now he is just in this period of time where he is waiting to begin to serve his sentence. That is the case for an unbeliever. He currently is under the wrath of God and currently under condemnation. And what condemnation is he under? The same condemnation that was given in the garden. The soul that sins, it shall die. And that curse has never been lifted. And so every unbeliever who has sinned is guilty under that condemnation. That is his condemnation. The soul that sins, it shall die. No more further condemnation needs to be given. He has sinned. And therefore he will die. Because that curse has never been lifted. And so he is under the curse of the law. He is under the curse of a broken law. He is under the curse of every sin that he has ever committed. In thought word, deed, motive, anything he has ever done or intended to do, which is a violation of the law and the holiness of God, is heaped up upon his head. And he is currently under the wrath of God. It's just that the unbeliever doesn't feel it yet and doesn't know it yet because he has not started to serve his sentence yet. Though the wrath of God is over him because he will not believe. And because he will not believe, his sins are still on his head and he currently 
is under God's condemnation. But not for you and I who have believed. For you and I who have believed, we have been declared righteous and been justified. And those who reject salvation, those who are condemned already are condemned. Why? Because God didn't love them? No. Are they condemned because God didn't offer a sacrifice for sin? No. Are they condemned because the gospel has not been offered to them? Because they haven't been given opportunity to believe? No, none of those things. Why are they condemned? They are condemned because they have refused to believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. They have looked upon and know of a Savior who is so glorious, so magnificent, so gracious, so powerful to save, who offers salvation and redemption to the penitent sinner. They have looked upon that and they have considered it unworthy of their attention and unworthy of their obedience, and they have trampled underfoot the Son of God. They've turned their heart away from the one remedy for their soul. And because they have spurned so glorious a person, their sin will not be forgiven and cannot be forgiven, because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, says, Nothing is so provoking and offensive to God as to refuse the glorious salvation that He has provided at so mighty a cost. Nothing provokes God so much as to refuse his salvation. Then J.C. Ryle said this, and this kind of took me aback for a second, but after some thought, I realized that he's exactly right. Listen to what J.C. Ryle wrote. Quote, It was a greater sin in Judas Iscariot not to believe on Christ for pardon after he had betrayed him than to betray him into the hands of his enemies. Let that sink in for just a second. It was a greater sin in Judas Iscariot, not to believe on Christ for pardon after he had betrayed him, than to betray him into the hands of his enemies. To betray him, no doubt, was an act of enormous covetousness, wickedness, and ingratitude. But to not seek him afterwards by faith for pardon was to disbelieve his mercy, love, and power to save. End quote. And here's what Ryle is saying. The betrayal of Judas toward Jesus was hideous and horrible enough as it was. But the greater crime was to not believe on him for pardon for that sin. Why? Because Judas had heard the words of the Lord that offered pardon for any sin. Judas had seen his acts of, of power, his demonstration of his willingness and uh, power to save. Jesus had, or Judas had seen Jesus offer pardon and salvation and forgiveness and offer those things to people. He had seen his graciousness heard his kind words, seen his loving kindness and his the beauty of that person. And yet Judas would not turn to him. And to spurn him for pardon was worse than betrayal because it was to say, I do not believe that you are gracious, that you are good, that you are powerful, or that you are willing to save. That was the hideous crime. And that is why unbelievers heap up for themselves wrath for the day of judgment because they will not believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Friends, unbelief is the worst crime you can commit. It is a crime of pride. It is a crime of hatred. It is a crime of selfishness. It is a crime against God of disbelieving everything He has said and everything He has done. It is a hideous crime. For those who have believed, we have experienced life, and goodness, and graciousness from the hand of God, forgiveness, we are not condemned. And then from this side of belief, those of us who have trusted Christ for salvation and been born again, we look at those on the other side of the table who have not yet believed, and what do we say in our minds? 
How can you neglect so great a salvation? We can't even understand that, can we? How can you not believe? Why would you not come to Him who is the only remedy for your sin-cursed soul? Why would you reject Him? We cannot even understand that, can we? But verse 19 to 21, Jesus diagnoses the reason for their unbelief. And what is it? They do not want to come to the light. It is not because God has not offered them salvation. It is not because God has not provided salvation. It is not because God has not given them opportunity to believe. But they will not come to the light. We'll look at verses 19 to 21 next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your graciousness to save, Your willingness and Your power to save us through Christ. We thank You for so great a salvation which has been made ours through Your gracious goodness, sovereign control over all things. We thank You that You have been good to us and that You have opened our eyes and drawn us to that light. We thank You that we have been delivered from darkness into light by the power of Your Son. And Lord, we have nothing in ourselves to glory in for that salvation but only in the goodness of our God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for that mercy and that kindness which has drawn us to You. And we glory in the cross. We glory in our Savior because it is all of Him and He deserves all that glory. We do pray, Father, that if there are people here today who have never believed on Christ for salvation, that You would convict their hearts and draw them to Your Son. We thank You that You are mighty to save, powerful to save, and willing to save any and all who will come to You in repentant faith, believing in Your Word and believing that You will save them. We pray that You would do that work among the many that we know that are here and even outside of this building whom we love, who are wanting and desiring nothing but damnation and nothing but Your absence. We pray that You would bring them to Christ for Your glory's sake, for the advancement of Your kingdom. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.